Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Musafir Stories, India's very own travel podcast where each week we discuss the story of travelers in their own words and relive their experiences with you our listeners. Hi guys, welcome to an all new episode on the Musafir Stories. We're celebrating the festive month of December and the run up to the new year by partnering with Cambly. Cambly is the only app in India that provides on-demand native English-speaking tutors over video to teach you English one-on-one. This is a great resource for those who are interested in improving their communication and their conversational skills. You can subscribe to Camly's monthly or quarterly plans and practice consistently every week. This is especially useful for those who want to be better prepared for interviews, presentations, or even those who are planning to head out abroad for travel or studies. You can access the sessions by logging on to the website that is www.cambly.com or by downloading the Cambly app from the App Store or Play Store. Not only that, listeners of the Musafir stories can avail an exclusive 32% discount on the quarterly plans by using the promo code TMS32. That's TMS32. We've included all details and the promo code in the show notes section of the podcast as well. So go ahead and grab this offer now and set off on your journey to becoming an excellent communicator. As for today's episode, we take you to the far east corner of the world with independent journalist and novelist Ajay Kamalakaran. We're giving away a copy of Ajay's book, Globetrotting for Love and Other Stories from Sarklan Island to one lucky listener. Just write to us on our email, themusafirstories at gmail.com and let us know what your favorite episode on the podcast is and why. It's almost New Year and we want to spread some love and joy. So let's get on to the episode now and find out more. So with that introduction, I'd like to welcome Ajay Kamalakaran to The Musafir Stories. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast and welcome. Thank you very much. It's wonderful uh, to talk to you and uh, to reach out to your listeners. It's an honor for us. But yeah, without much ado, Ajay, uh, why don't you tell us and the listeners a little bit more about you and where you're taking us to today? Okay, my name is Ajay Kamalakaran, as you mentioned. I'm an independent journalist and writer, and I'm the author of Globetrotting for Love and Other Stories from Sakhalin Island. Sakhalin Island is where I'm taking all of you to this afternoon. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, like we were discussing this just before the recording as well, Sakhalin might not really ring the bell for a lot of us Indians, right? Uh, a lot of us might not even know where or which part of the world this is in. So um, would you help us and um, draw out a little bit of a geographical context? Sure. So Sakhalin Island uh, is actually in Asia. It's in the Asian part of Russia. It's mm-hmm. just north of Hokkaido, which is the northernmost Japanese island. And it's seven, uh, it's eight time zones away from Moscow. So uh, when I used to work there, uh, if I'd get a phone call at 4 p.m. Moscow time, it would be midnight uh, in Sakhalin. <laughs> so it's basically a nine hour flight away from Moscow. We're talking about a domestic flight here. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's why, like, like I was mentioning to the listeners at the beginning of um, your introduction as well, that uh, usually we try and stick to Indian destinations on the podcast, but there was some kind of mystery or some kind of romance even about this place, right? That it's so far out. It's like completely, it, it feels like it's actually the end of the world. <laughs> it, you know, it really feels that way 
because it's about an hour away from the international date line. Right. So it really is uh, at the end of the world. And it is romantic for us as Indians simply because I live, I, I was born in Bombay and uh, I, I live here. And I can safely say that this is one of the most densely populated cities in the world. Now, the Russian Far East uh, has uh, a population density of one person per square kilometer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, if you just look at context, the populate Sakhalin Island stretches from north to south. It's 948 uh, kilometers and it has a population of 600,000, six lakhs. That's it. <laughs> yeah. As you said, so for somebody coming from a populated city like uh, Mumbai or even Bangalore, like where I come from, uh, this really feels like uh, the end of the world. And yeah, you might, uh, there might be times when you're uh, even struggling to see people around you, right? <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you can walk for 15, 20 minutes, see buildings, or even if you drive outside the, the city, then you see the, the vast openness of Russia. And it, it's, it's a nice feeling because here, Bombay is even more crowded than Bangalore. So you sure. walk on the streets here, you'll it's impossible not to bump into 10 people uh, every few <laughs> minutes. But in Sakhalin, you have space. And when you, when uh, people visit from more crowded places, they say, oh, this is a very depopulated place, isn't it? And I tell them, yeah, absolutely. In fact, the entire wider Russian Far East has a population, imagine, of something like 9 million. And um, that's, that's, that's nothing because it's, yeah. it's twice the size of India. And it's got 9 million people. <laughs> yeah, those are some numbers for uh, people who might be interested. Um, and yeah, just in terms of the um, historical context of the place as well, right? If you could draw that out, because uh, while looking up Sakhalin, I saw that it has um, an interesting mix of people as well, even though uh, it being a part of Russia, you'd expect mostly a Russian population to be there. But uh, can you give us a little bit of its uh, background too? Oh, sure. Well, people ask me, how did European Russians end up all the way in that corner of Northeast Asia? Uh And uh, historically, what happened was in the early 18th century, Russia began to expand uh, eastward and Japan expanded northward. So what happened was in the early 18th century, Russia and Japan uh, both occupied this island, which had some indigenous people who are closely mm-hmm. related to the Inuit, the Eskimos. Right. And they started uh, inhabiting this island. And finally, over over the course of history, uh, right till the end of the 19th century, Sakhalin remained, uh, the whole island remained a part of Russia. Mm. And in 1904-05, you had the, the Russo-Japanese War, which Japan won. So half the island was conceded, uh, conceded to Japan uh, as a part of uh, a peace treaty that was negotiated by the Americans. Uh, And uh, so for four decades, from 1905 to 1945, the southern half of Sakhalin was called Karafuto. Mm. And uh, basically, the Japanese uh, started to exploit uh, its resources. And uh, what happened was at the end of the Second World War, the Soviet Union retook the southern half of Sakhalin. So basically from 1945, all of Sakhalin uh, has been a part of Russia. Right, right. And mm-hmm. as for the ethnic mix, uh, it's a very unique place because even though the Soviet Union was a very multi-ethnic uh, country, the, the, dis- the ethnic distribution 
was um, very was was very different in Sakhalin compared to the rest of the Soviet Union because in Uzbekistan you mostly had Uzbeks in Armenia mostly Armenians in Sakhalin uh, it, it was one of the few places uh, in the Soviet Union that was completely multicultural mm. so what uh, you have several Aboriginal groups uh, the indigenous people they're known as the Evenk the Nanai. Uh, and a uh, few other indigenous groups that live there. They have visibly Asiatic uh, features. Mm -hmm. And also you have a Korean diaspora because uh, right. the Japanese brought Koreans as slaves, uh, slave labor to Sakhalin. And when they left, they didn't take them back. So these people basically over the generations integrated really well into Russian society. So they're physically Korean, but they speak Russian uh, without any kind of accent, and they're a uh, very good and integral part of uh, the community of Sakhalin. So it's really a, a multi-ethnic uh, place in a way that many parts of Russia and the Soviet Union weren't. Exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, while doing my research and looking up, uh, even I was um, a little taken aback by the kind of uh, diversity, the cultural diversity, right? Like you said, even between um, or even amongst the indigenous folk that come from there, as well as um, the Japanese and the Korean diaspora, like you mentioned, I was a little surprised and I had to look up a little to find out uh, how this happened. And yeah, it would be something to... Um, talk to um, Korean or uh, Russian-speaking Korean, I guess. <laughs> oh, uh, I have quite a few friends. In fact, uh, the the main manager of the Russian railways in Sokolin, uh, he just recently retired as a man called uh, Sergei Khan. And mm. this, he's one, I mean, he's a really wonderful gentleman. He's Russian to the extent that uh, we, when we have bard music evenings, uh, he's one of the most active uh, singers so they've, they've really integrated uh, so well into the society. And in fact, in my book, Globetrotting for Love and other stories from Sakhalin, they've actually mentioned there's one story uh, about an ethnic Korean, how it feels uh, to, to be a Korean in Sakhalin and in Russia. And it's a story of somebody who decides to try living in South Korea mm. and, uh, and, and compare that experience. So it, it, it is fascinating. And what the Korean diaspora has managed to do for Sakhalin has really livened up the cuisine. So when a couple of Indian restaurants opened up in Sakhalin, uh -huh. nobody said, oh, this is too spicy for me because Korean food is, is hotter, it's spicier. Sure. So, <laughs> so Sakhaliners took to uh, Indian food so well that uh, there's a restaurant there where, you know, wedding parties are kept there and people enjoy their cheese naans and chicken tikkas. So... <laughs> <laughs> But, Brilliant. but, you know, Korean salads, kimchi, and a lot of other Korean salads have been a, a, a part of Sakhalin's cuisine. And uh, in fact, in Sakhalin, people use uh, the word kuksa for noodles. That's the Korean word and not dashirak, mm. like it's used uh, in other parts of Russia. Right. So uh, th there is that influence. As for the Japanese, now, many of them were forced to leave. Well, they... Uh, at, when the Soviet Union took over the southern half of Sakhalin. But in 1991, after the collapse of communism, mm -hmm. uh, a, few, a few Japanese people started coming back. They opened restaurants. They started businesses. And uh, so you, you do see some Japanese people there as well. But, uh, of course, these, most of these people are, they, they speak Japanese and English and stuff. And right. they live as expats, whereas the, the Korean community is really a, a part of the you know the ethnic mix and the the fabric of what makes Sakhalin so special. 
Okay, brilliant, brilliant. And uh, it's great to find out, uh, like there's so many um, intricacies uh, involved, right? Uh, it's this beautiful place, but even in terms of the kind of people it has, it's uh, so very different from, like, like you said, even the rest of Russia for that matter. So looking forward to uh, learning and uh, hearing more about it. Uh, but uh, why don't you also tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your time there, right? How did you end up there? Uh, because... Um, it's not, I don't know if it's an aspirational place that an Indian is, uh, especially the kind of mindset we guys have, right? While we're going through like school and uh, college and university education, I don't think a lot of us would be thinking that uh, I want to grow up and uh, go work in Russia. So how did that happen and how did that come about for you? Well, of course, it's uh, very unique to see an Indian guy walking in the streets of Sakhal and Rakhis, it was when I first moved there. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, well, there's there's an element of mystery behind every writer. So, But what, what I can tell you is uh, one of the main reasons that I moved to the Russian Far East was just to be in a place where I could be uh, close to nature. Now, I, I, I read a lot, even though I grew up in the United States as somebody who was brainwashed to believe that the Soviet Union is evil, Russians are evil. Uh, after I moved back to India, I started reading a lot about uh, the, the, the nature, the areas beyond Siberia, things like uh, the geysers of Kamchatka and exotic places like Vladivostok. Mm-hmm. So the, and, you know, I was aware of uh, an oil and gas boom that was about to take place uh, before I moved there. Sure. And uh, the idea was, uh, you know, to explore opportunities and to completely transplant yourself into another culture and be a part of the non, uh, you know, Anglophone world where you really get a chance to, to learn something, to learn different ways. And my, my family, of course, were always fond of Russia. My dad was. And this was, I mean, for me, it was just a, an opportunity to see a part of the world that was, you know, relatively unexplored. And a, a place that was isolated because when the Soviet Union uh, retook southern Sakhalin, what they did was the whole island for more than uh, four decades uh, was during the Soviet time, it was completely isolated from the rest of the world. So even Soviet citizens needed special permission to visit uh, and foreigners, it was impossible. So when you go to a place that was isolated and you meet people uh, who, of course, They've watched uh, Indians and Hindi films. Uh, yeah. <laughs> everybody knows of Raj Kapoor. Yeah, thanks to Raj Kapoor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. And people of my uh, age group uh, know of Mithun Chakravarti. And the, oh, the funny okay. thing is that, oh, yeah, absolutely. The what, what I've noticed there, every year when the New Year holidays begin, uh, local television starts showing 1970s and 80s films, and people feel very nostalgic when they watch those. So people watch that around the new year and uh, it's kind of become a tradition. So, but for me, the whole idea was to, to just explore, to, to travel on the Trans-Siberian Railway and uh, visit Lake Baikal and, you know, j- just, just to get, get that chance. Because when you're really young, you, you have a, a much greater propensity to take risks, to <laughs> uh, just try and try out new places and, I just didn't want to be another one of those people who I had the option of going back to the U.S. or something, but I didn't want to do that. For me, it was just to try and see the rest of the world. The world is such a big place. Um, Brilliant. So um, now talking a little bit more about uh, the place itself, right, Sakhalin, 
drought was a little bit in terms of um, weather conditions also right i mean obviously visiting there is a completely different ball game compared to living there like you did right so uh, what are the kind of um, weather conditions that one lives through for majority of the year and uh, when is a good time to actually uh, visit saklin as a visitor or a tourist Okay, so there's this joke about somebody, about two people in Sakhalin, okay? Uh-huh. Tatiana asks Svetlana, have you actually witnessed uh, the Sakhalin summer before? And she says, oh, no, I was uh, out of the island on that day. On that day? <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is uh, summers are brief, but uh, that's really, uh, it's just a joke that, you know, we as Sakhaliners make about uh, the island. But honestly, it, it depends... Uh, Okay, there's a lovely summer season. Uh, July tends to get, I mean, for Sakhalin standards, 26, 27 degrees is, oh my God, that's so hot because you don't have fans, you don't have air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people tend to find that really hot. But July, August and September are absolutely beautiful months and uh, the summer months. And basically from the middle of September till about the second week of October, they have Babye uh, Lieta or Indian summer where uh, it's still pleasant the days are still warm it still goes about 20 degrees uh-huh. and it gets cold at night and and then basically if you're a nature lover the autumn is stunningly beautiful the the first few weeks of october uh, are really nice and uh, there's a riot of colors it's uh, it's different from the the north american autumn in the sense the dominant color in in the russian far east and in russia is actually golden yellow unlike the red mm-hmm. uh of the maple that you have in Canada <laughs> of the maple leaves and stuff but uh it that's also a beautiful time november is a you know rainy month and uh the, basically once the snow sets in in sakhalin you it, it it'll just be there right till uh, the end of april so if you like winter sports like ice climbing skiing uh skating and if you like the kind of if you like the kind of nature that you've seen in the first narnia film uh, <laughs> then i would recommend a trip in the winter people say oh minus 20 minus 25 i tell them relax the buildings are warm there's central heating right. and uh the snow is beautiful and it's in the winter that a lot more parties are kept at home and russian society is so open where people love to invite uh strangers home and when you make new friends you go in you just feel like you're a part of that society and that, that i would honestly for for somebody from here i would recommend going in the winter time and experiencing sakhalin has great beaches in the summer but mm-hmm. so do we but if you go in the winter and you want to uh to, to ski you want to try out a completely unique experience where you'll really have that kind of novelty I know people who go up to to Darjeeling hoping for snow and they come back disappointed. <laughs> Trust me, you will have a white <laughs> Christmas in Sakhalin. You will have uh, more snow than you enough to get sick of it especially if you live there. Uh right. But you know the other seasons the only time I wouldn't recommend going uh to Sakhalin is the month of April when uh it's that transition period between winter and spring. So when the snow melts it's very muddy you get uh I, i joke that okay you can on a typical april day uh when you go to work you get uh, splashed with dirty water by you know <laughs> moving vehicles and then at night uh, you add um injury to insult because the that water freezes up and you slip and fall on the <laughs> ice so uh that's a season i wouldn't recommend but i would say say from may onwards if you like warmer weather 
uh, travel from May and uh, what what I really love are the the long days in May and June. So you have a sunset at at ten o'clock and there's so much daylight. And when you're, when you're living there and working there, imagine on a Friday evening uh, you send everybody home at five o'clock uh-huh. and you you go home and you have another five and a half hours of daylight. <laughs> and how wonderful is that? You know, just when, what I really love about that season is. Uh, the lilacs are in bloom, so the fragrance uh, of the cities. I mean, it, it's so wonderful to walk in that fragrance and uh, w- with that fragrance in the air, and uh, just to enjoy that daylight. That that's something I that is priceless mm-hmm. for me. Those uh, those long summer uh, days. Absolutely, uh, especially since you have uh, such a short summer, right? Uh, and uh, some of your best memories also, I'm uh, sure, perhaps are in the summer. But uh, yeah, there's a ton of other activities that one can indulge in in uh, winters as well, right? Like you pointed out, uh, things like um, ice climbing, uh, fishing on frozen sea. Well, what is that all yes. about? Okay, well, that is something uh, every year you'll read a Reuters, AFP or AP report of fishermen uh, who are standing on ice floes that got cut off uh-huh. from <laughs> the main ice and they're actually adrift and they need to be rescued by helicopters. What happens is uh, when the Amur River, uh-huh. uh, which uh, flows through China uh, into Russia, it empties out into the, the North Pacific Ocean, the Sea of Okhotsk, ice flows are formed because of the, the, you know, the mix of fresh water with uh, salt water. So the top layers of the sea, uh, they're frozen over. Mm-hmm. So what people do is they go ice fishing. Uh, and that's an experience that I really loved, both on lakes as well as on the sea. And it, it, it's just wonderful to walk for two, three kilometers on the sea. And again, that's a unique experience that uh, very few places can provide. And I, you know, for me, a person like me, I would always feel sorry for the fish and dump it back in the water. And my friends would say, okay, this guy is not getting lunch. He's not getting dinner because we camp uh, by the sea as well, saying that, look, this is, a, you know, this is our food. Uh, leave your um, sympathies for the fish behind if you want to come fishing with us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, as you said, uh, this one, I don't think uh, I had heard of before, right? Uh, Ice fishing, uh, this, is, this is what it's called. Um, so yeah, there's a number of other activities in the uh, Russian winters as well. It's not like uh, just because it's winter, you're uh, holed up in your apartment or in your home and doing nothing, right? There's a lot of activities. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, there's plenty, plenty of activities. In fact, uh, there's this holiday in Russia, Feb 23rd. It's called Men's Day. Okay, so Russia has a Men's Day as well. Okay. <laughs> and um, I see people playing... Uh, football on an ice field that it, it's quite comical people still manage to run on the snow and the ice but they slip and fall and that's, that's a tradition uh, in, in Sakhalin a lot of skating rinks are open and also uh, having barbecues mm. people love the great outdoors uh, in that part of Russia so it's so much a part of the the culture a part of the tradition uh, to to enjoy the outdoors and what living there did for me was it made me appreciate the the great Indian outdoors more. Before moving to Sakhalin, I'd never been to the national park in, in Bombay, in Borovli. Uh-huh. And uh, now I, tr- I go there very often. I spend time out in nature. I take my friends there. So Russia really, and some of the major treks that I've done in the Himalayas, it's because I was like, wait a second, I'm doing all this in another country and, I, and we have such a beautiful country with such amazing nature. We, we need to do this as well. And I encourage people here 
to you know to spend more time outdoors with me because of that experience <laughs> absolutely like i like this here there's a saying in hindi it's called um ghar ki murghi dal barabar right dal barabar <laughs> <laughs> something like that you always uh, yeah. appreciate things a lot more when you're away from home but back home you uh, don't value them as much but yeah i'd uh, completely um i'm completely on board with what you're saying that uh, we have to explore our country um a little bit more and show much more enthusiasm and appreciation for the kind of diversity it has and uh, the musafir stories is also one such um, i think uh, one of our objectives is also like to let uh, people from outside and uh, people from india as well know uh, more about the places uh, the kind of uh, places and the diversity that india has to offer too uh one other thing that stood out for me that uh, perhaps you want to shed a little bit of light on is um your sauna experience uh, that's another part of the russian culture right that's uh, not very prevalent here so why don't you kind of share that too uh, all right okay so there's uh, in russia we use the word banya for sauna uh-huh. and uh, basically what happens this is something which is common across the length and breadth of russia so going to the banya is very much a russian tradition and what happens is uh men do it women do it but separately so you're completely in your birthday suit you're totally naked okay. you sit with guys in the steam room and you discuss uh, all sorts of things under the sun i've had uh, people ask me about uh, varnasi uh, when i'm in the sauna there there's a joke there's been a joke that hey it's as hot as india in here and i'm like haha very funny guys <laughs> and uh if it's the winter time you sit there you warm up then you run outside and throw yourself into a you know big uh puddle of snow i don't know if puddle is the right word <laughs> but you jump into the snow and otherwise uh you run out and jump into a river or into a pool so you warm your body you cool it and uh they say that this is um really healthy for you it i i think they've used a, a scientific term uh for this hormesis okay. apparently yeah uh-huh. <laughs> so it's uh, apparently creating a little bit of a shock uh, you know into your system it uh, actually it's good for you so this tradition uh, is something that's really nice in fact one of the soviet union's most famous films called irony of fate or have a nice bath is a it's a movie that mocks the soviet system um, made in the 1970s and it's about a guy who goes and gets drunk in the sauna and uh, ends up you know flying to st petersburg then known as leningrad from moscow and turning up uh, in someone else's apartment it's it's hysterical <laughs> so the banya sauna culture is so embedded in russian culture and uh, i i think the only other country where a visit to the sauna is so important is is finland Interesting. Yeah, again, a uh, very, very uh, cultural thing, right? Uh, things that you might only experience in um, this part of the world, or uh, maybe a couple of other places, like like you mentioned. Oh, absolutely, and and it and it's so when you have Russian friends, that's one thing. Okay, you know that someone's really a friend of yours when he invites you to the sauna. Mm. <laughs> Then you know that okay, you really bond with that uh, person, and you just meet people and. Uh, It, it it is funny you know some i sometimes somebody who i don't know says oh my god where did you get that awesome tan and uh, <laughs> you know i'm a good laugh and i'm like uh, you know what maybe seven generations in india and you'll look like me and they're like you know we're extremely jealous and i'm like <laughs> it's it, it, it's hysterical the what i also like so much about russia is um if someone likes you you know it immediately there's no there's no pretending there are no fake smiles in russia it comes straight from the heart uh-huh. so you know where you stand with somebody uh, immediately 
And that's wonderful. I mean, for a guy like me who also likes to be quite upfront about how comfortable I am with someone, this is, it's great to have a country where it's a cultural thing to be like that. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm uh, definitely sure, especially like growing up in the US, right? You would have uh, felt that stark difference, um, even in terms of the personalities, right? How people approach oh, things oh, like sure. friendships or uh, courtesies and stuff like that, right? Uh, yeah, Russians are right. usually oh, yeah. very upfront about it, right? Yeah. Russians are upfront and friendships are seriously valued because mm -hmm. in Russia, culturally, you have three words. You have... Uh, the word um, that's like, okay, I know this person, I have a good relationship with him, then, uh, you know, but he's not, in, in America, that word friend um, is loosely used. Then the second degree is priyatil. So it means, okay, yeah, this guy is more like a casual friend, but then we, you know, we're, we have something to, it's not, it, it's a higher degree than just Znakom, uh, and uh, then, yeah, and Drug, and like when a Russian uses that word, Drug, it means friend, it's, it's really something, because most people believe you can't have more than five or six friends, uh, and uh, friendships are so vivid, so valued, and th that concept of loyalty uh, is so strong uh, in Russia with the culture, so I'm very fortunate because I've lived in different parts of Russia, so I have my have real friends in many different parts of the country the, and it's, it's a wonderful is that, feeling. Is that what it's called? Druk? Yeah, Druk. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Druk. So if somebody says Druk, then it means something. It really, it's it's not the way we say, you know, friend in English and uh, ami in, in French. Uh, this it, it, There's a, a, a greater meaning to this. In fact, uh, the Soviet times, there was also uh, this word tavarish, which means comrade. Mm. So a, a comrade would be more than a znakome, but uh, less than a priyatel. <laughs> and obviously, so, you know, there's this degree of it. But I like that. But when, when somebody says, my good friend, you know that that comes uh, straight from the heart. Uh, and... In America, of course, I enjoy the, the politeness of the, the American people. That's uh, something that is very commendable. But when, if, when someone's smiling at you, if you don't know whether that's really sincere or... Uh, sure. So I, I, I prefer it this way when <laughs> you have these kind of, um, you know, that, that sincerity. And when somebody doesn't like you, you know, it as, you know that as well. No one's going to say nice to meet you <laughs> if, it, if they don't really feel that it's nice to meet you. So, <laughs> yeah, and people mistake that for rudeness. They say, and I said, no, it's not that. It, it's just a case of a degree of directness. It's it's all part of that mysterious Russian soul. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, yeah, I think it's great to learn about uh, some of these. Uh, yeah, it's definitely not very subtle, but obviously, a lot of as an outsider, you might not know of uh, things like this, right? Which you got to experience from your uh, time living there. So that's brilliant. Um, now and. Another thing that people usually think about before moving to a new place is obviously the food, right? Uh, so how did you do with the food, the Russian food, especially the food of uh, Sakhalin, the Far East? Okay, well, the thing is that uh, in Sakhalin, you have a lot more diversity when it comes to food because you have some of the best seafood in the world. And uh, you, of course, I mentioned earlier about the Korean cuisine. And you had many good Japanese restaurants out there because it's so close to Japan. So there was an incredible amount of diversity. But I think what really struck me when I first moved there in 2003 was that, okay, going out and eating out is not as common as it is in Asia. 
and you just have to you have to learn to cook because restaurants are expensive like they are across Europe and uh, I, I learned to make different Russian food but I really enjoyed it I mean it's not spicy of course uh, some dishes are uh-huh. but you know once you're cooking at home you can modify it uh, to your own taste but in Sakhalin you have uh, this this diversity in cuisine and this is actually throughout Russia now because a lot of people from former Soviet countries have moved to different parts of Russia. So you get uh, Uzbek cuisine in the Russian Far East. They we have pulav, they have plov, and they insist that pulav came to India, but you know the the Mughals <laughs> brought it, uh, and it's actually plov. And they say samosa was actually shamsha, which we brought to you. And I'm like, okay, fine. Maybe you brought these things to us. You got some great tea in return, right? And we spiced up the cuisine, so you know we have this in common. We have a good laugh about this. <laughs> so the, there is that diversity. But one thing I've noticed over the last few years is uh, vegetarianism and veganism have become so popular in Russia among the intellectual circles and stuff like that. And I have so many friends who just don't eat meat. Mm, interesting. And uh, they're like, uh, and they tell me, and I'm like, okay, guys, I, I'm from India, but I do. And I eat all kinds of meat. And I just, I enjoy the taste. I mean, but there are a lot of people there who've really moved uh, into these kind of practices. And uh, and apparently, this is something I came to know later on. Tolstoy himself was a vegetarian. And there were many other uh you know, eminent Russians who who adopted uh, these kind of um, culinary habits and stuff. Essentially, in the wintertime, you have a meat and potatoes country right. in most <laughs> parts. And that is not something which everybody would enjoy. But I, you know, Russia has this diversity with soups and uh, different kind of dumplings. And, and, and of course, another wonderful thing out there is you know, the the alpine fruits, the, the tempered fruits, the kind of berries that you get. So you go pick berries yourself, pick mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's a totally different kind of experience. But after living in Russia and making strawberry jams and raspberry jams and stuff, I do the same thing here in India. You get wonderful strawberries from Mahabaleshwar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I make different kinds of jams, compote. I do that and people are like, wow, hey, we never thought of doing all this. And I said, no, we also have this tradition. There's, you know, we have ampana in the summers. Right. We make jams from different kinds of mangoes. We make shrikand. I think the whole approach to making more jams and having it with my tea is something that I, again, I picked up from there. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, so it's a bit great, like uh, drawing out this beautiful picture, like even for me, right? Uh, you're um, drawing out such a, a beautiful imagery of um, life in Sakhalin. It's, it's beautiful. I think that's also one part of these audio conversations. You have to try and build up on uh, things and descriptions that um, person you're speaking with builds, right? Uh, now, Currently, um, what is the situation like in terms of um, how developed the nation uh, or uh, Sakhalin is, right, for that matter? Uh, how, how different is it, say, from the rest of Russia? And uh, what are the kind of people you meet there? Like, what occupations would you find them in? Okay. Well, as for the, the development, uh, you know, as expected, the European parts of the country are definitely more developed and they have better infrastructure. But over the last uh, five to 10 years, there's been so much, there's been such an emphasis uh, from the, the Russian federal government to improve the infrastructure. In 2012, for example, uh, Vladivostok, which is the last stop on the Trans-Siberian right. Railway, hosted the Asia-Pacific Economic uh, Council Summit, mm-hmm. APEC. And um, 
what happened was all of its uh, pre-Russian Civil War, pre-Revolution architecture, those buildings were restored, tastefully restored, and a lot of new modern infrastructure came up. So there's been massive infrastructure building across um, the Russian Far East. So any city that you go to uh, will look really well-developed. They're clean. They're safe. Uh, in fact, uh, in the summertime, when you visit, you see flower beds everywhere, fountains, people basking and enjoying the sun. So, in t- you know, in terms of infrastructure and quality of uh, life, uh, things continue to improve. I mean, 15 years ago, I remember uh, at six o'clock in the evening, you'd see teenagers sitting in a park bench and drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. And now at 6 p.m., you see kids with badminton and tennis rackets running <laughs> You know, to to play, and uh, this these are with an improvement in general standards of living and uh, more promotion from the government. Things have changed there. As for working there, there opportunity. Well, uh, recently, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi was in Vladivostok uh, for the Eastern Economic Forum. India was the uh, chief guest, mm-hmm. the guest of honor country there, and uh, basically. The government announced that there will be uh, a one uh, billion, uh, you know, line of credit that's uh, extended to the Russian Far mm-hmm. East. So this mainly it doesn't mean India is giving Russia a loan. What it means is uh, your any industry companies from India that are exporting there or setting up shop there will get uh, support. They can use this this credit mm-hmm. line. So if if uh, in Sakhalin, for example, if you're uh, an oil, a geologist, an oil and gas engineer, uh, if you have, if that is your specialty, then uh, there are great opportunities, and you know, with really high pay, and you don't immediately need to know Russian uh, to to take those expat jobs that are still available right. there, although not on a scale that they were about ten years ago when these projects were just uh, you know coming up. But uh, so if you're into oil and gas, that's one thing. If you're into finance, all these companies need their finance professionals. And uh, if you're into things like logistics, Russia is really trying to make the Russian Far East a main logistics hub connecting the Indo-Pacific and uh, Europe. So, you know, these kind of opportunities uh, also exist uh, there for people. And of course, uh, for people who aren't, uh, you know, into, into technology, there's obviously a demand uh, to teach uh, English and to teach other foreign languages uh, in the Russian Far East and to get, you know, Russia's investing a lot in human resources. So teaching uh, is also a great way to, to get to meet local people, to be a part of the, the local community. So these kind of opportunities definitely exist. And uh, the Russian government is trying to encourage more people to visit the Far Eastern regions, although this preferential treatment uh, is only there for countries that really have close ties with Russia. For example, mm-hmm. for India, uh, I mentioned before we started this talk about uh, how uh, you can get an eight-day uh, visa to the Russian Far East online. Okay. So it's free. You go on the Russian Foreign Ministry of Affairs website and uh, you just... Uh, pass pass on your details and you you know take a printout and uh, you get you get to see eight days isn't a lot but it's fantastic just get a, a first glimpse to understand how the place is and uh, it, it's a wonderful opportunity this offer is only it's only there for citizens of 16 countries and not a single western country so <laughs> the Americans and Europeans and Canadians don't have this privilege uh, we do and of course this is slowly being extended uh in St. Petersburg from the 1st of October, 
And there's a place called Kaliningrad, which is a Russian exclave by the Baltic Sea, which is, you know, next to Poland and Belarus and Lithuania. So they're offering, so we have these kind of privileges. But for the Russian, but for the Russian Far East and particularly Sakhalin, uh, there are, you know, I would say narrow, it narrows it down to the oil and gas industry, to finance, to teaching. And of course, uh, if uh, you're into diamonds and uh, uh, those kind of things, there's a particular niche out there for these industries as well. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, yeah, I think a very important point that you brought up is that um, uh, preferential treatment in terms of um, the free eight-day visa, right, for Indians that you mentioned. I think that's something that right. people can definitely uh, avail. And uh, I wasn't aware of this until you brought it up. But uh, for people looking beyond uh, Moscow and Petersburg and uh, uh, like the Trans-Siberian uh, Railway, right, like you said, for people be- looking for an experience beyond that, I think Suckland does offer a great, great way to experience the Russian Far East. And thank you so much for uh, drawing this out bril- brilliantly for us. Um, now, before we start kind of winding this up, uh, why don't you also call out uh, and give our listeners a few details about the book you wrote there and also your uh, upcoming book that you're going to be penning? Right. Well, uh, first of all, Globetrotting for Love and Other Stories from Sakhalin Island is a collection of uh, 11 short stories. And it's set in Sakhalin from 2003 to 7 when I lived mm-hmm. there. And the idea to write the book came when I, a- after I left in 2007, I went back there for the first time in, in 2013. And I'd seen that life had changed completely. The infrastructure got better, lifestyle seemed to have improved, but that bus that was around when there were so many f- expats living there, that had gone. Mm. So the whole idea was to fictionalize life in those years and put that out and uh, it's something that uh, has been well received. And I mean, it's complete fiction. I've been threatened with a couple of lawsuits uh, from people who claim that I that it's a caricature of, of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, one girl claimed that uh, the title story uh, is about her. But um, anyway, she backed off. But the, the point is that the whole idea was I wanted people to understand how life was in those years there. And now when they go there, they'll appreciate Sakhalin for other reasons. But uh, at that time, you know, it was a different place. This is just after the Yeltsin era, when uh, Russia was coming to its own, when such things like crime were a problem and uh, you had issues like uh, alcoholism and things that have been really re- nipped in the bud and things have... I- I've seen the changes take place uh, over this period. Uh, as for... Uh, as for my writing, well, uh, I'm actually going to be publishing uh, a novella which is set in Moscow. And as of now, I'm also working on a novel that's set in Khabarovsk. That's a city which is also in the Russian Far East. And it's uh, a, a one-hour flight away from Sakhalin, but it's towards Moscow. So it's, uh, you know, just seven time zones away. Uh, <laughs> it's an enormous... Co- so when you say, yeah, oh, it's only 900 kilometers away in Russia, that's like, oh, that's close <laughs> for a country of that size. Uh, so this is a novel set there. But I, the whole idea for me is, uh, as a writer, I just want to show people... Uh, how life is with you know when a person visits russia as a tourist 
uh, and sometimes even living there as an expat. They live in uh, gated communities. They, uh, you know, and when you're a tourist, you just go and see what's mainstream and what's in your guidebooks or what you Google. But life there is so fascinating if you're an insider. So the idea is to is to is to give an insider's look. Mm-hmm. uh to the functioning of society be it in moscow be it in sakhalin elsewhere because it's such a fascinating place absolutely absolutely uh, that's great we will leave links to the uh, books as well in the show notes that way people can check it out and uh, maybe we'll plan something too in the future we'll figure out uh, a way in which we can uh, perhaps give away a copy of the book to our listeners too yeah while we figure this out uh, there's always the link in the show notes for um, listeners to go check it out uh, but i'd like to thank you so much ajay for uh, coming on and uh, sharing these brilliant experiences um, thank you so much for uh, painting a beautiful image of sakhalin and life in sakhalin for us Uh, hopefully more people will be inspired and uh, some of them can go ahead and uh, uh, check out the place too and uh, all the beautiful things and uh, the rich culture thank you so much ajay we'll keep in touch and uh, we'll look forward to your upcoming books as well that was yet another great episode of the bazaar stories if you guys like the show Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Audioboom, Savan, Pocket Casts, Castbox, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app available on iOS or Android. Please do leave us a review on iTunes. It goes a long way in the show's discoverability. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We go by the handle The Musafir Stories. Or if it suits you, you could email us at themosafirstories at gmail dot com, or visit our website at www dot themosafirstories dot com for more information. All of these links will be made available in the show notes section of each episode. So here's to more traveling, sharing, and inspiring. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, happy travels and goodbye. My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two. Also, this morning I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe.